So now I invite you to open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel 15, starting in verse 23. And if you're using one of the Bibles under the chair in front of you, that's on page 249. Or you can simply follow along on the screen. So now please stand, if you are able, to honor the reading of God's word. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat me, you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met with him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When King David came to Behurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. 
And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then, Ab- then Abishai, the son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. This is the word of the Lord. His word endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Janelle, for reading all of those fun names. Welcome back to 2 Samuel. We took a little, bit, a little bit of a break last week going through Psalm 103, which was refreshing. And, uh, but now we're back. Second Samuel has been an amazing book. The whole book of Samuel has been an amazing book to study through. And uh, we've been actually plugging through pretty good up until chapter 15, where we have now slowed down. This is our third sermon in chapter 15. And by God's grace, I am carrying us out of this chapter into chapter 16. And I'm even dipping into chapter 16 a little bit, okay? You saw that, 14 verses, so we're moving along by God's grace. In the midst of hardship, in the midst of trials, dark times in your life, maybe you can look back and think about those times where things were not going very well, or maybe perhaps today things are not going very well. Have you ever been encouraged with the words, trust in the Lord? By show of hands, how many people have heard that from somebody? Hey, trust in the Lord. Okay, a lot of us have heard that. Most of us have probably heard that. I have been told this my entire life. By God's grace, I I was raised in a Christian household. My mom loved Jesus. And pretty much every, every time I was in some trial or circumstance or uncertainty, my mom was very quick to say, trust in the Lord. And I would say throughout my adult life, most of the times I received that encouragement. Most of the time. But I can say there are a handful of times that when I was told to trust in the Lord, it was hard for me to receive. It was actually quite challenging. And I remember these few times. I can think of two specific times, and I'm not going to share this morning, but two specific times where personally I felt like devastated in a situation that I think was quite painful. And to be honest, events that really seemed so unnecessary in my life, events that I felt like God like couldn't you have brought about your good plan through other means? Like, why this? And I think from an earthly perspective, I can still look back and go, man, I don't really see exactly why, God, you did it that way. Why this way? Maybe you can relate to me on this. 
And when you're told to trust in the Lord when it feels like your world is crumbling and you can't make sense of things, it can be hard to receive. It can be a little disorienting. It's like telling a starving person to not worry about food. And that's all you can think about. But the older I get in life, and the older I get in my faith, my relationship with God, the more I understand and know who God is, that simple phrase, trust in the Lord, triggers all these amazing realities of why I can and why I should trust God at all times in my life, especially in the dark times. We can trust God because God is good. And all that he allows in his people's lives will work out towards good and glory. We can trust God because he counts the Christian, his sons and daughters, you and me, he counts us precious. He bought us with the blood of his son Jesus. How much more precious can you get? We can trust God because he loves us. He assures us that nothing can separate us from his eternal love. And we can trust God because he is in control. God is sovereign. He reigns above it all. Therefore, church, we can and we should trust the Lord. Especially in hard times because God is the only one who can carry us through them. But what does it look like to trust the Lord? More specifically, what does it look like to trust the Lord in dark, excruciating, painful moments in our lives when it feels like we're sidelined and we're just watching our world fall apart, our own personal little world fall apart? For some of us, I mean, the world is falling apart, but our own personal world falling apart. When we can see our health slipping through our fingers, when we lose our home or our our marriage is suffering or our careers are just not working out the way we had hoped and dreams of a family are falling apart and our reputation or relationships or our kids, we're losing our own children. What does it look like to trust God in moments when good things start to rot, when things start to go bad? Now, I don't have all the answers for that question this morning because I think there are a lot of answers to that question. And I also think there are are different ways to understand, unpack these types of answers and questions considering who an individual is. But I do believe that our text this morning offers us some framework on how you and I can trust God when we encounter seasons of darkness and pain. Essentially, this text is showing us how God is trustworthy. So please pray with me right now as we ask the Lord to really just minister to us and teach us how to trust him and really how trustworthy he is. Father, thank you for this time that we can get together as the body of Christ and worship you as we read the scriptures this morning, as we sang songs of praise, reflecting on, God, who you are and how mighty your name is and how good you are and how you sent Christ to die on the cross. Now Christ is the cornerstone and God, it is Christ and Christ alone that we have been saved through Christ and Christ alone that we have been saved. God, we thank you for all of that. Now, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us in your holy word. We need you. Open our hearts, open our ears. Help us to see your glory, to see Christ in this text this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, we have a unique story in front of us today. On one hand, we're reading about a man trusting in God through very dark times in his life. 
But if you've been with us through the story of Samuel and David, this dark time has been brought upon him by his own sin. King David, who we're reading about, who's fleeing from Jerusalem, from Absalom, is experiencing judgment or discipline for his past sins of adultery and murder that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So this particular story of trusting God in dark times is unique because David has brought these dark times on himself. Some of us may be able to relate to David here, meaning the hard circumstances that you're dealing with in your life are consequences of your own sin. But in this story, David's example of trusting God in his self-inflicted circumstances goes way beyond his own personal experience. And in that way, church, we all have something to gain here when considering how to trust God in hardship in general. The sermon title this morning is God is Trustworthy. You can thank Vijay Jaraman for giving that title because he's the one who gave it to me. God is trustworthy. Yes, he is. I've drawn out three points from this text this morning. If you're a note taker, you can write them down. I think they'll be on the screen behind me in a second. Number one, trusting in God involves submitting to what seems good to him. Trusting in God involves submitting to what seems good to him. Number two, trusting in God involves pursuing his promised ends. And number three, trusting in God involves believing that what is meant for evil, God intends for good. Now let me give you a little context here. If you're joining with us this morning for the first time, again, we've been going through the book of Samuel I'm not going to give you the entire backdrop of Samuel, but I'll give you at least a couple hints up to this point. Two weeks ago, we studied 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 14 through 22, which explained that David, that we're reading about, was fleeing Jerusalem because his son Absalom was marching towards the city to take the throne. The family drama here began as far as back as 2 Samuel chapter 13, when Absalom's sister Tamar was raped by her half-brother Amnon. And when King David hears about it, we read that he was angry, but he did nothing. So Absalom took matters into his own hands. He kills Amnon, and he's exiled for it. Eventually, Absalom is brought back into Jerusalem, and King David and him settle things for the most part, or so David thought. Absalom, this is David's son, then conspires against him. He raises support from the prominent men in Israel, and then David finds himself here in a full-tilt coup. His son Absalom is making advancements on the throne. And now we read that Absalom is down the road, coming with his army, coming to wage war. But David doesn't want war in Israel. He doesn't want Israelite blood shed. He doesn't want war at all. He doesn't want anyone in his family to die. He doesn't even want Absalom, his son, who is now coming to kill him. He doesn't even want him to die. So David begins fleeing the city with those who remain loyal to him. And as he's fleeing, he has this series of interactions that we just read about here in our text. A number of interactions with different individuals with different motives. The first being with the priests of Israel and the Ark of Covenant. So let's go ahead and jump back into our text as I read through it and we'll unpack it. And let's glean from the holy word of God. Chapter 15, verse 23. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by and the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on towards the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Let's stop there. So here in our story, David and his company have exited the city. 
They're now on the perimeter of the city. They're leaving. And as they're leaving, the priests, Abiathar and Zadok, show up with all the Levites with the Ark of the Covenant. If you're unfamiliar with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark was this beautiful piece of furniture that was crafted according to God, which served as his earthly throne, so to speak, that symbolized his presence on earth and his promises to his people. So they set the Ark down before David and all the people. And as David looks at the Ark, he does something that would have surprised everyone who was around him. He tells the priests he's not taking the ark with him. And he tells them to take the ark back into the city, out of his presence, where his son Absalom will soon be. It's verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, Behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Now, normally when Israel went to battle, they would have the ark with them because the ark signified God's presence. It signified his favor, God's blessing. And it oftentimes, I would say majority of the time, signified a certain victory. Because if God was with them, they were good to go. They were going to win this battle. Back in Numbers chapter 10, we read that the ark went, wherever the ark went, God went. Numbers 10, 35. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. The people of God understood that it was God who fought their battles. So the ark was carried into battle, believing that God would be present with them and would give them certain victory. So the question in our text this morning becomes, why then would David send the ark back to Absalom, back to the city of Jerusalem where he would not be? Why would he not carry the ark wherever he went? And the answer in our, here in our text is that David is uncertain whose side God is on. Did you catch that? David says in verse 25, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. David doesn't know what God is doing here. He doesn't know if God is for him or if he's for his son Absalom. And because David is uncertain, he dares not presume that the ark belongs with him. He will not presume that God has given him victory. So he tells these priests, take the ark home. And if God is for me, then God will bring me back here once again to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What a scary place to be in. As I read this text, I just thought, man, what a terrifying place to be in. This place of lost confidence an uncertainty of whether God is for you or against you. David used to be so confident. One of the things we love about him in, this, in, his, in his life, his story, his biography, is he is just a confident man that God calls a man after his own heart. So, yeah, I don't know where he's losing this confidence. What happened to him? Well, actually, we, we do get a hint of what's happening to him. And we know the past couple of chapters, what happened to him, and that is that David sinned greatly before the Lord. David committed terrible sin, and his sin had gotten in between him and his God. It's messed with his confidence. 
And in a real tangible way, his sin removed some of God's favor and blessing in his life. And now he isn't even sure if God will see him through this event in his life. Have you experienced this kind of uncertainty after sinning against God? I have, 100%, especially as a new Christian. I remember what it was like to sin against the Lord when I had this false understanding of what it meant to be saved by grace. What it meant to know that there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ. I have many friends who have struggled with this as well. Friends who have dealt with the consequences of their sin and feel as if they've lost this favor with the Lord. Friends who have committed serious sins. Sins of adultery, abandoning their family, sins of lying and dishonest gain at work, sins of substance abuse. Listen, church, all sin is serious. And all sin finds a way to drive a wedge in between us and the Lord. Sin has a way of pulling us from the fountain of God's blessings. And that's because when we sin, we are choosing to forsake the living fountain of God for what turns out to be dry, broken emptiness. This is what God says to his wayward people to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2.13. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When we sin, when we, as Psalm 1 puts it, walk in the way of the wicked and stand in the way of the sinner, we will in some way, shape, or form miss out on God's blessings. That's a fact. And it's a hard fact. David is experiencing this reality here. This is why God pleads with us, church, to turn from our sin and come to him and drink from the fountain of Christ, the fountain of living water, and to do it daily. Because Christ makes all things new. And where Christ can most certainly restore what was lost. Our sin tries to drive that wedge in between us. And when it does, we miss out. But even though our sin gets in the way of God's blessings, for the child of God, this is important, church, for the child of God, our sin will never, ever get in the way of God's love. Don't miss that. Our sin messes things up, but it will never shut the heart of God towards you. It will never shut the heart of God towards me. And that's because God gave his son to forever close the gap between us and him, and he did it by paying the price for our sins through his death on the cross. Christ's perfect sacrifice has removed any possibility of us being separated from God. That's why Paul could write in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In Romans 8, 38, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? David didn't have Romans 8 to meditate on, to assure him that although there are consequences to his sin, God will not leave him. But here's what David did have. He had the words of the prophet Nathan, which I am confident he would have remembered a few chapters ago when David was caught in sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, on behalf of the Lord, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. 
Church, our sin impedes God's blessings in this life, but praise be to God, our sin cannot remove the forgiveness that we have been gifted in Christ, nor can it stop the forever love of God towards you and me today. So if you feel uncertain of God's love for you because of your sin, I would first say, confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin if you haven't done that already and trust that Jesus has paid for your sins at the cross and rest in his finished work. So David has lost confidence that God is on his side because of his sin, but one thing he hasn't lost confidence in is that God is good. Do you see it here in verse 26? He says, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Listen to what David's saying here. He's saying, I don't know what you're going to do, God, but I trust and submit to your decision. Either raise me up or sit me down. Either let me live or let me die. God, you do what seems good to you. David has resolved in his heart that whatever God does will be good. Therefore, he will submit to it. And here we see the first lesson on what trusting in the Lord looks like. Point number one, trusting in God involves submitting to what seems good to him. Trusting in God involves submitting to what seems good to him. Not insisting on what seems good to us, but submitting to what seems good to him. Psalm 145 verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The knowledge that God will only do what is good should lead us, church, to a place of trust and submission to all that God allows into our lives. Let me repeat that. The knowledge that God will only do what is good should lead us to a place of trust and submission to all that God allows into our lives. And that, my friends, is a lot easier said than done, right? Do we believe that God is good? We can get a response out of that. Do we believe that God is good? Yes. Do we believe that God is sovereign? He's in control. Yes, we do. Do we believe that God will only do what is holy and good and just and kind and compassionate and loving towards his children? The answer is yes. Psalm 103, we studied last week, and it just gives us a little refresher of how good God is. I want to read it to you really quick, just a couple verses. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. I am convinced that if we can cling to the truth that God is good and perfect in all of his ways in the midst of our storms, then we will endure to the end. And not because of our belief, but because of God's goodness and God's faithfulness towards us. We can trust God will do good. We can trust that God will do what's best. Therefore, we can submit to whatever he has in store for us. 
Now, David doesn't know what God is going to do, but he does know that God will do good. So he submits himself over the will of God because God is trustworthy. Now, I said that trusting in God is not insisting on what seems good to us. And it's not. Trusting in God is not demanding our way. God, I'll trust you if things work out this way. That's not how it works. But that does not mean that we shouldn't pursue what seems good to us. And here's the qualifier for that. Pursue what seems good to us in accordance to God's word. To pursue what seems good to us in accordance to God's, in accordance to God's word. Now, immediately after David submits his life over to God's will, he then goes and starts working towards the results that he would like to see, which is getting his kingdom back. Again, he's not sure what's going to happen, but he's like, here's what I do know. I'm going to get his kingdom back. And he starts immediately putting things into play to do that. 2 Samuel 15, verse 27. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimez, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. So after David makes this powerful statement expressing that he is good with whatever God decides for his life, he immediately starts strategizing to gain the upper hand against his son Absalom. He tells the priests, Abiathar and Zadok, and their sons to go back into the city and essentially spy on his son Absalom. David then finishes his walk up to the Mount of Olives in verse 30 and says, But David went up to descend the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So now we're reading that David is weeping, he's barefoot, his head's covered, he is mourning, he is upset. Then word comes to him that one of his close advisors, Ahithophel, has also betrayed him. And now he's advising his enemy, his son, Absalom. And we read in verse 31 that David's immediate response is to cry out to the Lord. He says, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And then lo and behold, as David approaches the summit, he is met by a beloved friend and counselor, Hushai. And David once again springs into action. Verse 32. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I'll be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimez, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. It's a lot of names. <laughs> I'm just like getting tongue twisted as I'm saying it. But right here, David is instructing his friend, Hushai to go back to Jerusalem and counter this, this council from Ahithophel who has betrayed David. He's essentially saying, get the king to trust you and then give him counsel that counters Ahithophel's counsel and by God's grace that he'll like listen to you and that'll better my situation. So Hushai agrees to this, heads back into the city to work for David alongside Zadok and Abiathar. We're going to get into our second point, but I want to pause just for a second so I don't miss something here. 
before we get to that point, there's definitely something worth considering here. Now, a lot of bad things have been happening to David up to this point in chapter 15. A lot of bad things. But here in verse 30 is the first time the author tells us that the emotional state of David. Now, we now know David is weeping in agony. Now, again, he has many reasons to be emotionally distraught and frustrated. His son is trying to kill him. His people have sided against him with his son. He is forced to evacuate the city he built. But in our story, it appears that the event that finally broke him is when the ark of God's presence is taken away. We read about his emotional state, his weeping and his mourning, after the scene that God's ark, the presence of God, is taken back into the city. Now, if you've read the Psalms, you know that David loves to be in the presence of the Lord. Because David loved the Lord. And when he was away from the ark, he longed to be back in his presence. He longed to worship in the tabernacle with the people of God. David wrote in Psalm 26, 8, Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. And then again in Psalm 27, 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David loved to be with the Lord. To part ways from the ark was to part ways with the physical representation of God's presence. And although David knows that God is not confined to a piece of furniture or to a temple, in a real way, David is experiencing meaningful separation from the Lord. He does not know if God will restore him to the throne. And he's weeping. Now, I bring this up because this whole story has a very close parallel with the events in Jesus' life in the New Testament some 900 years later. The journey that David is making out of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives is the same journey that Jesus would have made the night he was betrayed and eventually put to death on a cross. And when Jesus arrived in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was in agony. He was extremely sorrowful to the point of sweating great drops of blood as he considered what lie ahead of him. Betrayal. Beatings. Crown of thorns, cat of nine tails, nail to a cross, and death. But as terrifying as all this was, it did not come close to what Jesus would experience when the full wrath of God would fall on him and to where he would experience spiritual separation from the Holy Father as he bore the sins of the world. It was then that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The eternal fellowship of the Trinity experienced temporary separation as the Father turned his face away and made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, Jesus suffered and died so that you and I wouldn't have to. He took our place on the cross so that we could have his place in the kingdom. And he experienced spiritual separation from the Father so that we could spiritually be united to him through faith and never experience separation from the love of God ever. Is that not an amazing reason to worship Christ this morning? Amen?
Our second point, that was a little abrupt, but we're getting into our second point now, is this. Trusting in God involves pursuing his promised ends. Trusting in God involves pursuing his promised ends. Now notice with me that after David submits his life to God's goodwill, he didn't just stand around idle, waiting for God to sort it out. You know, he immediately started strategizing. And that's what we just read about. He is putting men into place, the priests and his counselor, to get into the kingdom and to figure out how to counter Ahithophel's counsel and to gain the upper hand with Absalom. Now remember, he didn't know if God would give him the victory, but he did know that he was still God's anointed king. And until God says otherwise, he was going to pursue the kingdom entrusted to him. And I think there's a good lesson here for us today as we consider what it looks like to trust God in hard times. Trusting God in hardship is not always throwing your hands up and saying, Jesus, take the wheel. As much as I love Carrie Underwood. It is not always throwing our hands up and saying, Jesus, take the wheel. Now, I say not always because sometimes there are situations where we literally can't do anything except throw our hands up. But if we're going to throw our hands up, church, it better be towards the heavens in prayer. Because prayer is the one thing we can always do. Not only the one thing we can always do, but the most powerful thing we can do. And we see David do this here in verse 31. But also when in hardship, oftentimes there are actions that can, ta- that can be taken to bring us closer towards the light at the end of the tunnel. As I was reading this, I was reminded of a quote from Frederick Douglass, who was a Christian abolitionist and statesman who experienced terrible injustice as a slave in the 1800s. And he prayed and prayed for God to free him, but it never happened until one day he literally just ran off the property. He just took off. And he is quoted as saying, I prayed that God would emancipate me, but it wasn't until I prayed with my legs that I was emancipated. He isn't saying God wasn't doing anything so I take matters into my own hands. He is saying that he waited and waited and waited for God to miraculously free him from slavery. And then one day it dawned on him he realized that God had already provided the means to be free, his legs. And so he took action. He just ran. And I was reminded of so many different stories in the Bible where it says this is the case. I'm thinking of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Man, he could have just lied there on the bed and said, Lord, just deliver me. But no, he got up and he ran, okay? He got out of there. He took action. I was thinking of Esther and the deliverance of her people. She could have just prayed and prayed and prayed and said, Lord, just deliver my people. But no, she took action. She went and approached the king, interceded for her people. She trusted that God would see her through it. I was also thinking of Ruth and Boaz, like talk about putting yourself out there. Ruth goes to the threshing floor, hoping that Boaz, this man, would redeem her and provide for her. She trusted that God would provide her. She took action. Here in our story, David prays that God will confuse the counsel of Ahithophel, but David didn't just expect God just wave his hand over Ahithophel and just make him speak unintelligible words, which God could have done very easily. What God did do, though, is he provided a friend and he provided wisdom. And David could see that this was the possible answer to his prayer and he acted on it. And we find out later this was exactly the case. Hushai countered Ahithophel's wise counsel and Absalom believed that Hushai's counsel was better than Ahithophel's. It was confused and it worked out to David's advantage. I think this reminds us today that more times than not, God answers our prayers and accomplishes his will and our lives through faith-filled action. 
For example, most Christians who have come, have come to me for counsel express they have been praying and praying and asking God to deliver them from whatever it is, whether it be restoring their marriage or giving them victory over sin or resolving any anger problems or, or, or just asking God to give them hope in their dark time of trial. And after many counseling appointments over the past 10 years, many problems that people asked for help with were resolved by simply pointing them to what God has told them to do in, their, in his word. Showing them that God has already prescribed these beautiful means to work through this life. And it, it was, oftentimes it could be that simple. Read the word of God. Get to know God. Commune with him in prayer. Commit yourself to a church. Seek out godly men and women for discipleship and fellowship and counsel. Put sin to death don't leave it on life support. And most importantly, rest in the gospel every single day. Now, I want to be clear, like change is not something that we can just make happen. It's not like you can just say, hey, do this and this will happen. That's not how it works. There is great blessing attached to doing what God prescribes. But I will say this, yeah, so change is 100% a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But a major way the Spirit works in our lives, is through ordinary means of grace. The Spirit works in our lives through ordinary means of grace, meaning the Spirit works in our lives through us reading God's Word, because the Spirit is illuminating the Word of God, teaching us the Word of God, directing us, giving us understanding, teaching us how to walk and keep in step with Him. Praying, fellowship, worship, this is all a work of the Holy Spirit, but church, we need to take action. We need to listen to what God is calling us to. Most letters written by the apostles in the New Testament consist of two major parts. Number one, the gospel, what we should believe. And number two, the second half normally is in how, a strong encouragement on how to live that out. How to pursue this life in Christ, motivated by the, the beautiful reality that we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Church, we would do well to look around, exercise wisdom, Take action in accordance with God's word and trust that God will see to it because ultimately God is the only one who can see to it. Now, as David heads further towards the Jordan River, he meets two more individuals. And um, these people are not the best company. We'll read in verse, uh, chapter 16, verse, verse 1. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Ephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread and 100 bunches of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruit are for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said today, The house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. Let's stop there. If the name Ziba sounds familiar, that's because we just read about this guy a few months ago in 2 Samuel chapter 9 in the story of Mephibosheth which is a beautiful story. Mephibosheth was this crippled grandson of King Saul, the former king, that David accepted into his kingdom and gave him tons of wealth and invited him into his, play, his palace where he would eat at the king's table 
always. This guy Ziba that we're reading about was the manager of Mephibosheth's estate. He would manage his, his estate, his land, his wealth, his property, his home. And it was given to him again by King David here. Now here we see Ziba approach David and give him two important things. First, he gives him provisions. Lots of bread, basically a very nice looking fruit basket, and transportation, a few donkeys. Second, he gives him news. He tells David that Mephibosheth has also turned on David and is now staying back in Jerusalem, hoping he will be made king now. David believes Ziba and gives all of Mephibosheth's wealth to Ziba. Now, it's, it's a very interesting story. I'm fully convinced that Ziba's lying here. Um, David, I don't know what's going on here. I believe that Ziba is motivated or trying to ingratiate himself into David's company. And obviously, he's getting all of Mephibosheth's estate. But let me give you the reasons why I think Ziba's lying here. And then we'll get into why this is important for us as we study this text. Here's why I believe he's lying. Number one, Ziba says that Mephibosheth stayed back to become king, when in reality, he had no chance of becoming king. Mephibosheth had zero chance at becoming king. Number one, Mephibosheth was crippled. Israel demanded their kings lead them physically into battle. It was not going to happen for Mephibosheth. He was crippled and he was unable to lead as a king of Israel in this, in this ancient time. The other thing is he had no chance at opposing Absalom. Remember, there is a guy who's already heralded himself as king coming with his army. Mephibosheth has no army. He has nothing. So the, the, the idea that he was planning on becoming king now that David is fleeing and Absalom is coming is a bit absurd. The second reason why I don't believe that Ziba's telling the truth here is we have plenty of reasons to believe that Mephibosheth loved David. He deeply loved David and would not have turned on him. Here are my reasons for that. Again, he was given a place at David's table and given tremendous wealth from David. David had only given him good things. Eventually, David regains control over Jerusalem. And, we, and when we see this happen, he enters into the city and he sees Mephibosheth. And we read about his appearance in 2 Samuel 19. This is the appearance of Mephibosheth. He has uncut nails, dirty feet, long hair, uncut messy beard, dirty clothes that have not been washed since David left essentially having this appearance of mourning, but also having the appearance that he was left to die. Ziba was, or excuse me, Mephibosheth was abandoned by Ziba. I also want to point out, again, more reason to believe that Mephibosheth loved David is when David questions Mephibosheth when he comes in to, back in Jerusalem in, in 2 Samuel 19, um, he questions Ziba why he didn't come. And, and Mephibosheth, why he didn't come. And Mephibosheth tells him that Ziba left him. He told me he would saddle the donkeys and then abandon him. And that would be pretty easy to do considering that Mephibosheth was crippled and was unable to take care of himself or walk down to the donkeys. Lastly, let me point this out. When David talks to him and confronts Mephibosheth, he tells Mephibosheth, hey, like your wealth is gone. But what he does is because David doesn't know who to believe, he actually parts the wealth. He says, okay, I'm going to give half of it to Ziba because I'm not sure if he's telling the truth. And I'm going to give half of it back to you. And here is Mephibosheth's response to that, which if he's being honest, I mean, that'd be frustrating, right? I mean, like, just give me what's mine. Here's what Mephibosheth says in, in chapter 19, verse 30. And Mephibosheth, oh my goodness, this name. Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Mephibosheth doesn't even care about the wealth. All he's saying is, I'm just happy that you're back here. He can take it all. 
as long as I have your presence again, as long as I'm safely with you, that's all that mattered to him. So yeah, I do believe that Ziba is lying. And just to help back that up, a lot of commentaries believe he's lying too, okay? If you're struggling to believe what I'm saying. Um, but we'll study that text in a bit. Now, I bring all that up, and I will tie that up with a bow, is to show this, like, this beautiful scene is really just one more example of how what, what someone can intend for evil, someone with intentions, malicious intentions to either hurt Mephibosheth, like, like Ziba has here, to gain selfish, like, grace and approval from David, it still does not change the fact that this situation is a demonstration of God's goodness in providing for David and his people in a time of need. It's amazing how God works all these things out for the good of his people, and we'll get into more of that in a minute. Now, the next story is 2 Samuel 16, 5 through 14, okay? Let's, let's read the rest of this text, and we'll close it down. When King David, became, when King David came to Barim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei. It's a fun name to say, Shimei. The son of Gera, and as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of the king David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood." Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take his head off. But the king said, What have I to do with you, sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite? Leave him alone, let him curse. The Lord has told him to. It may be, but the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, cursed as he went, throw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived where he at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. David is almost to the Jordan and we read a man named Shimei, a descendant of Saul, comes out to curse him. He is ticked. The reason for his cursing of David is that he thinks that God is judging David because he went against Saul, the Lord's former anointed king. And he thinks that David is the reason for the house of Saul to fall, which is completely false. If there is anyone completely innocent of Saul's death, it was David. David literally spared Saul's life several times while Saul was trying to kill him. But doesn't change the fact that Shimei is convinced that David is worthless, evil, and a man of blood. He's throwing stones at him. He's flinging dust at him. And he points out that God is giving the kingdom to his son Absalom as judgment for his sins. Now, this is a really interesting passage because although Shimei has some of the details wrong, he is more right in his assessment of what's happening here. David is a man of blood. He murdered Uriah. He was, a, he was worthless in that sense. The Lord did say he would have someone rise up in his home and, go, and do great evil to David. And all of this would be judgment for his sin. And as all of this is happening, David's bodyguard, Abishai, asks if he can go cut his head off. But David's just like, no. David tells him, 
If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? Now, David is essentially saying in this text that the Lord is the one who is behind this man's cursing. He says, let this man curse, for the Lord has put these words in his mouth. Internally, David had to have been thinking, Shimei isn't all that wrong. And he sees it through the mouth of this fool. God is reminding him that all that God said would happen is now coming to pass. And then David says something odd here. In verse 12, he says, It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Now, this could simply mean that David's hoping the Lord will spare him because David spared this fool. It could simply mean that. But there is a deeper theological meaning here that I believe has such great power in reminding us how trustworthy our God is. Which brings us to our third point. Trusting in God involves believing that what is meant for evil, God intends for good. Now notice this real quick. In both cases with Ziba and Shimei, both men had evil motives. Both men had malicious intent. Ziba towards Mephibosheth, Shimei towards David. But both men were used by God to accomplish his good plan in the life of his servant, David. Which reminds us that God's ways are so radically different than our own. Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God used what Ziba intended for evil for David's good. God used Shimei's false curse to remind David that he is being disciplined by the Lord, which communicates that God is in complete control and that God loves David. Hebrews 12, 6 tells us, For the Lord disciplines the one who he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And in verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What Shimei intends for evil, God intends for good. This reminds me of two things, and we'll close with this. It reminds me of the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. It's the second best example I have of this truth. Joseph suffered tremendous um, hardship and pain, beginning with his own brother selling him into slavery, then false accusations of rape and years of prison. Joseph lived this terrible life with a dark cloud over it. And eventually, God brought him out of this, and he ended up being this instrument in Egypt to save so many people. And here's how he interpreted it in Genesis 50-20. He says to his brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph was able to see that all of the evil done to him was intended for good. And not just for him, but for many others, including his evil brothers. Think about that. His sinful brothers who started this end up being saved through that. How amazing God is. How miraculous his ways are. Lastly, the greatest evil done in all of history was the death of Jesus on the cross. This is the ultimate picture of this truth, this reality that God intends even the darkest, evilest things for our good and his glory. Christ was perfect, righteous, and good, and yet beaten, 
whipped and killed on the cross at the hands of his people. And yet, that great evil was intended for the greatest good. The payment for our sins so that we might be saved. Yes, we believe and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So let us trust the Lord. Now the story ends with David arriving weary at the Jordan River, but it gives us a little hope because we read that it was there that he refreshed himself. This could have been a bath. This could have been a nap. It could have been some summer fruit that he was given by Ziba, but it also probably involved reflection on what just happened. It was a long day. And I want to close with the words of Psalm 3, verses 1 through 5. This is David reflecting back on this day where he was fleeing from Absalom. And here's what he said. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. Let's pray. Father, there are so many reasons that that you are trustworthy. And a lot of them we, we shared, we talked about this morning, God, but there are so many that we haven't even talked about this morning. But God, I just want to pray, help us to submit our lives and our circumstances over to you. Because you are a good God. We can trust that you will do what's best. Help us to trust and act according to your word in trial. For your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And lastly, God, I pray you give us more faith to believe that what Satan means for evil, you intend for good. And you most certainly will work all this for good and for glory. Help us to trust you at all times. Thank you for being trustworthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.